Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Dear listeners, welcome back to The Big Picture. Well, you've heard the first part where A.B. Dawji plays which he annually the Al-Amariya bomb shelter massacre. Uh, very heartbreaking tragedy. Um, it's, there's no words to describe. There's no words to describe it. And of course, you know, we've had the uh, earthquake of last week. Um, that struck uh, Turkey and Syria. And, um, you know, just to talk about that, you know, there's no doubt that everyone who has a conscience in the Muslim world or even an iota of humanity would in them lived with great sadness and heartbreak as we saw the tragic aftermath of the terrible earthquakes that struck these two countries. Tens of thousands, in fact, now the figure is sitting at over, way over 40,000, were killed or injured, and entire cities and towns were destroyed in both countries. Earthquakes take no notice of arbitrary borders. Turkish blood mixed with Syrian blood in the rubble were hands, were, where hands were joined and souls met as they ascended to the Creator. Turks and Syrians worked side by side to rescue survivors despite the appalling weather. Nobody thought twice about the nationality of the injured child, woman or man. All were happy when anyone was pulled out from the rubble alive. Credit goes to the Turkish officials who used the international context to garner solidarity and aid for both countries, even though the international focus tended to ignore sanctioned Syria. This was no surprise, as Islam unites us in the face of those who try to separate us and provoke nationalistic, ethnic and sectarian conflict amongst us. The earthquakes demonstrated that Islam unites us no matter our differences and brings us closer no matter how far apart we are. Hence, our hearts were breaking as we watched the rescue teams pull the dead from under the rubble. We prayed them farewell with tears and prayed to Allah to have mercy upon them, accept them as shaheed and save those that were left behind. It was clear that the earthquakes brought out our shared humanity. The Muslim people, particularly other people, responded before their governments, as usual. Appeals were launched from masjids and congregations were performed for absentee janazah as an expression of the ummah as one body concept. Donations were made to provide humanitarian aid for the earthquake victims. The victims lost everything in the blink of an eye. They spend their whole life working hard to buy their house, their car, save for their future. Then they were gone. They had to leave it all behind. They had no choice. Our lives have become so fragile. fragile. We argue and fight with each other and gloat about our power and authority one minute and in the next it's all taken away. Our human weaknesses were exposed by the force of nature. We currently see it here in South Africa. We had the floods that hit KwaZulu-Natal badly in April 2022, late April 22, and again in May 2022. We had floods again now that recently hit parts of northern Natal, Newcastle, now currently Newcastle, part of Ladysmith, then, uh, then uh, the other uh, provinces of parts of Mpumalanga, Limpopo, parts of Gauteng. Stanerton is totally underwater. And we forget all these things that, you know, these things come about this, this test from the Almighty. Nevertheless, social media was filled with hundreds of stories coming out from under the rubble, and they have no choice but to say, Glory to be to Allah who bring the living out of the dead and bring the dead out of the living. 
One moment, one mother who went into labor gave birth under the rubble. She handed her baby to the rescue teams and then sadly passed away. Another child was pulled from under the rubble after 120 hours, laughing and smiling as if he hadn't been under the rubble for many long hours without food, water or daylight. These two surviving children represent the new challenges for the region. With every hardship, there comes ease, as we are told in the Holy Quran. There is good in everything, even if you can't see it at the moment. Turkish President Rajab Tayyip Erdogan and his wife Amina visited the city of Kar- Karaman, Kar- Karaman Marash the day after the earthquakes to reassure their people about the progress of the world being done following this, the disaster. Erdogan walked through the streets, meeting families and weeping with them and promised that he would rebuild what was destroyed within a year and provide them with decent housing. The Turkish leader also said that they would be given money to help them as this during this difficult time and announced a seven-day period of mourning for all the victims and a three-month state of national emergency to remove the rubble and restore life to those affected cities. Actually, it covers 10 provinces in the country. Whilst over in Syria, Meanwhile, the barbaric President Bashar al-Assad, who I refer to as the butcher of Damascus, and many do in the Arab world as well, and not those Syrians who are opposed to him, but a lot of Arab Muslims in the Arab world refer to him as the butcher of Damascus. And his wife, Asma, went to Aleppo only four days after the earthquakes. The earthquake struck... We all know that the earthquake struck on Monday, the 6th of February, in the early hours of that morning. Him and his wife only chose to go four days later on a tent. Why? Because they had to be assured that the aftershocks had ended. And then when they got there, they posed for photos, smiling for the cameras, as if it were a happy occasion. Assad was no doubt pleased to receive phone calls from Arab and other leaders offering their condolences and calling for sanctions for Australia to be lifted, which would benefit the regime and end the punishment of him and his senior officials. They all stand accused of using chemical weapons against civilians and committing the most horrible crimes against humanity as well as war crimes. An end to sanctions would also mean that humanitarian aid would flow into Syria, opening up new possibilities for high-level looting and discriminatory distribution. This was a frequent complaint on social media. We've seen it here, that's what's happened in South Africa. In fact, Assad and his criminals are subject to what they call the America's Caesar Syrian Civilian Protection Act. But the real siege is against the liberated areas in northwest Syria that are held by the opposition. That's where the butcher's regime has targeted residents with battle bombs and supported by its regional and international allies since March uh, 2011. That's now going to be 12 years next month. The siege has been in place for more than 10 years, well, almost 12 years, and it affects around 5 million Syrian citizens, most of whom are displaced and fleeing from the regime's depression. Regional and international positions on the regime have gone back and forth and have chopped and changed, well, the world provided with the support uh, despite its crimes 
and what will be seen as some of the uh, sort of normalization with the Assad regime. We already know that the United Arab Emirates is one of those that are uh, leading this reconciliation or normalization. This was an immediate matter of moral and humanitarian controversy. But some Arab countries decided quickly what their position would be and provided direct support to the Assad regime. This happened despite many reports alleging that he dealt lightly with the earthquakes, and he did do that, and even traded some of the aid at a time when it was hard to be, uh, for the aid to be reaching those affected areas. What little has managed to get through was never going to be enough, given the extent of the human and material damage. The friends of the killer Assad said that the earthquakes were a golden opportunity to be used politically and exploited in his favor. The voices who are calling for an end to sanctions on him and his regime are getting louder. If you see social media, there's a young girl called Patricia Chaib, who's been only on Twitter, uh, TikTok from November, and she sends a viral video using profanities about ending sanctions on Syria and crying about it. What, who is she? She's one of Assad's influences. And they white and, and I'll come to this right. We'll, so if this happens, we all know that it means that he will be given more time to liquidate more members of the Syrian opposition. So what was going on with all these, uh, with the social media things is that they were pushing for this narrative that there's sanctions on, on Syria, and because of sanctions, humanitarian aid cannot come into Syria, which is a big lie. Because if you look at the sanctions that have been imposed against Syria, uh, especially on the Assad regime and all his... Uh, cronies, it excludes humanitarian aid into the country. Given that Damascus is still controlled by Assad, Assad has closed the door to humanitarian aid going to rebel-controlled areas. That's why you'll find that humanitarian aid going to Syria prior to the earthquake has mostly gone through Turkey. And this is the audacity there. So what they did is that they were saying that, you know what, we want humanitarian aid to come in for the people. The whole world wants to send, but how can it come through if there's sanctions? And how they use this narrative, this lie, in order to feel good about it. And then, and then on top of it, do a symbolic visit to Aleppo, take photos. Oh, yeah, we visited earthquake area. There's so many other earthquake-affected areas. But that's unfortunately what you get. And you'll get, of course, those that are gullible to it, even our Muslim people who feel that, you know what, sanctions must end, sanctions must end. Otherwise, how the people in Syria are going to get aid? People in Syria can get aid. The Assad regime has to allow it. So eventually, he had to put his tail between his legs because of the international embarrassment that it was caused towards him, and he allowed humanitarian aid to come in. And that's what it was as far as that is concerned. Now, look at also the aftermath fallout of this. Right? The Muslim community in the UK were horrified to receive a hateful letter after two after these earthquakes left tens of thousands of people dead, right? In an appalling and disgusting show of animosity at a time nations worldwide have come together to help heal the wounds from the devastating disaster, two masjids in London, both the UK's first Turkish masjid, known as Masjid Ramadan, and the largest one known as Azizia Masjid, were shocked to receive letters at the same time this past Wednesday, the 15th of February. And the letters read, I wish to make it clear that it is not heartfelt sorrow that I feel that thousands of Muslim people died. I'm only, 
I'm only sincerely sorry that more Muslims did not die. How is that? So this is a sort of... Uh, and then in response to this, the uh, Erkin Gunay, who is a chairperson of the Masjid Ramadan, had said that the content of the letter was very dark, upsetting and disturbing. And he said, still, I can't put into words that my stomach is still turning from the content. He said, after adding that it was filled with darkness, hatred towards Muslims. This is a sort of thing, and we all know about Charlie Hebdo, that infamous stupid satire uh, cartoon uh, publication based in France, what they did, and they showed that, well, uh, the earthquake has managed to achieve what our tanks, no need to send tanks. Sick things like this. Then moving on to another sick leadership that obviously thinks in the smash space, of course, the Modi regime of India. And just this week, the Ministry of Finance in India accused the BBC of tax evasion, saying that it not uh, fully declared its income and profits from its operations in the country. Right? So Indian tax authorities and the three days of searches right, of the BBC's offices in Delhi and Bombay. So without naming the BBC, the Central Board of Direct Taxes, which is the SARS, said on Friday, that's yesterday, in its first official statement, since completing the inspections and the raids, that its survey revealed that despite substantial consumption of content in various Indian languages apart from English, the income profits shown by various group entities is not commensurate with the scale of its operations in India. This was blatant payback time to the BBC for airing those documentaries, uh, those two-part documentaries about Modi. So, talking about, you, if you can recall, I was uh, the other day I mentioned about Guant Guantam Adani, who was the third richest man in the world, was the richest man in Asia, who rose from a fortune of $2 billion or less than $2 billion prior to Modi being elected Prime Minister in May 2014 to suddenly in excess of $100 billion until, well, say just a month ago. Right? And how did he rise so rich? So, anyway, we'll come to that just now. And there's a very interesting article by Arundhati Roy that came out today in The Guardian. So, you heard of George Soros, that infamous philanthropist who is a speculator who, uh, who tends to uh, bet on currencies and tends to use this to his advantage, basically play the currency market by speculating and has brought nations to their knees financially. He, did it. he was exposed heavily for the 1997 Southeast Asian crisis that hit Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines, um, Thailand, etc. So... Just this week, uh, I think it was if recently, yeah, uh, as a couple of days ago, George Soros hit out at, uh, at the Modi government over Adani. So in response to that, his party, the BJP, accused Soros of trying to undermine India's democracy by predicting that Adani's uh, woes would loosen the Hindu nationalist leaders' grip on power. So apparently... Um, George Soros, who is now 92, yeah, and this was on Thursday, he told the, the, uh, the, the, the annual Munich Security Conference that Modi and his business tycoon Adani are close allies. Their fate is intertwined, and the conglomerate's troubles would significantly weaken Modi's stranglehold on India's federal government and open the door to push for much-needed institutional reforms. Right? 
And um, well, it went on to say that, um, uh, etc. But then the BJP, one thing you must know, they learned so well from these days. In fact, they perfected it and taken it to another level on how to run their own hospital. Only thing we need to give it a title, their propaganda machine. We know the Zionist propaganda machine is known as the Hasbara. We need to give something to the RSS BJP for their propaganda machine. So what happened was that um, Arun Dotti Roy's article published today in the paper, in fact, A.B. Dowdy sent it to me this morning, and, um, you know, having a quick read through it, so obviously I couldn't make notes on it and discuss it. So I'll have to read this article verbatim, right? And it's headlined, Modi's model is at last revealed for what it is. Violent Hindu nationalism underwritten by big business. The author of this article, Arunati Roy, in The Guardian newspaper, www.theguardian.com. So the subheadline says, India's Prime Minister and the billionaire Gautam Adani each benefited from the other's rise. Now their relationship is under scrutiny. So she starts off by saying that India is under attack by foreign powers, especially the UK and the USA. Also, our government would have us believe, meaning our government, the Indian government. Why? Because former colonialists and neo-imperialists cannot tolerate our prosperity and good fortune. The attack, as we are told, is aimed at the political and economic foundations of our young nation. India is 75 years old. I don't know if you can consider that young anymore. But, I mean, it's an old nation because you must know it goes back centuries, right? The covert operatives are the BBC, which in January broadcast a two-part documentary called India, the Modi Question, and a small U.S. firm called Hindenburg Research, owned by 38-year-old Nathan Anderson, which specializes in what is known as activist short-selling. Right. Now, the BBC Hindenburg moment has been portrayed by the Indian media as nothing short of an attack on India's Twin Towers. <laughs> right? India's Twin Towers. Narendra Modi, the Prime Minister, and India's biggest industrialist, Gautam Adani. Those are known as the Twin Towers. Who was, until recently, the world's third richest man. The charges laid against them aren't subtle. The BBC impl film impl implicates Modi in the abatement of mass murder. The Hindenburg report published on 24th January accuses Adani of pulling the largest con in corporate history, an allegation that the Adani group strongly denies. I've yet to come across a blatant criminal admitting anything. Modi and Adani have known each other for decades. Things began to look up for them after the 2002 anti-Muslim pogrom which raged through Gujarat after Muslims were held responsible for the burning of a railway coach in which 59 Hindu pilgrims were burnt alive. Modi had been appointed chief minister of the state only a few months before the massacre. At the time, much of India's uh, uh, much of India recalled in horror and open and at the uh, sorry at the open slaughter and mass rape of Muslims that was staged on the streets of Gujarat towns and villages by vigilante Hindu mobs seeking revenge. Some old-fashioned members of the Confederation of Indian Industry even made their displeasure with Modi public. Enter Gautam Adani. With a small group of Gujarati industrialists, he set up a new platform of businessmen known as the Resurgent Group of Gujarat. They denounced 
Modi critics and supported him as he launched a new political career as Hindu Hriday Samrat, known as the Emperor of Hindu Hearts, or more accurately, the Consolidator of the Hindu Vote Bank. In 2003, they held an investor summit called Vibrant Gujarat, so was born what is known as the Gujarat model of development, violent Hindu nationalism, underwritten by serious corporate money. In 2014, after three terms as Chief Minister of Gujarat, Modi was elected Prime Minister of India. He, f he flew to his swearing in ceremony in Delhi in a private jet with Adani's name emblazoned across the body of the aircraft. In the nine years of Modi's tenure as Prime Minister, Adani's wealth grew from well, I was saying earlier on 2 billion, but according to this article, it says from 8 billion to 137 billion rand. That's in less than nine years. In 2022 alone, he made 72 billion rand. Uh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, what am I saying, man? Mouth. From 8 billion dollars to 137 billion dollars. Right? That's a sh sharp rise of What's it? $129 billion in nine years. So in 2022 alone, he made $72 billion, which is more than the combined earnings of the world's next nine billionaires together. Imagine that. How is that possible? So the Anani Group, which now controls a dozen shipping ports that account for the movement of 30% of India's freight, seven airports that handle 23% of India's airline passengers, and warehouses that collectively hold 30% of India's grain, it owns and operates power plants that are the biggest generators of India's private electricity. The Gujarat model of development has been replicated at scale. First, Modi flew in Adani's plane. The Bhattacharya goes. Now Adani flies in Modi's plane. And now both planes have developed engine trouble. Can they get out of it by wrapping themselves in the Indian flag? So, episode one of the BBC film, The Modi Question, and she says she appears briefly in the documentary as an interviewee, is about the 2002 Gujarat pogrom. Not just the murdering, but also the 20-year journey that some victims made through India's labyrinth legal system, keeping the faith, hoping for justice and political accountability. It includes eyewitness testimonies, most poignantly from Intias Patan, who lost 10 members of his family in the Gulbag Society Massacre, which was one of the several similarly gruesome massacres that took place over those few days in Gujarat. Imtiaz Patan describes how they, were sheltered, how they were all sheltering in the house of Ehsan Jafri, a former Congress Party member of Parliament, while the mob gathered outside. He says that Jafri made a final desperate phone call for help to Modi, and when he realized no help would come, stepped out of his home and gave himself up to the mob, hoping to persuade him to spare those who had come to him for protection. Jaffrey was dismembered and his body burned beyond recognition and the carnage rolled on for hours. When the case went on for, to trial, the state of Gujarat contested the fact, that the, the fact of the phone call, even though it had been mentioned not just by Patan, but several other witnesses in the testimonies. Now imagine the state of Gujarat is testing contesting this where they supposed to be the prosecutor. Right? The contest contestation was upheld. The BBC film clearly mentions this. Vilified, 
though it has been by the BJP government, the film actually goes out of its way to present the BJP's point of view about the program as well as that of the Indian Supreme Court, which on 24 June 2022 dismissed the petition of Zakia Jafri, Esan Jafri's widow, in which he alleged that there was a larger conspiracy behind the murder of her husband. The order called her petition an abuse of process 20 years later and suggested that those involved in pursuing the case to be prosecuted. Modi's supporters celebrated the judgment as the final word of his innocence. The film also showcases an interview with the Home Affairs Minister, Amit Shah, another old pal of Modi's from Gujarat, who compares Modi to Lord Shiva for having swallowed poison and held it in his throat for 19 years. After the Supreme Court's clean chit on, the minister said, truth has come out shining like gold. The section of the BBC film that the government of India has acted most outraged about was the revelation of an internal report commissioned by the British Foreign Office in April 2002, so far unseen by the public. The fact-finding report estimated that at least 2,000 people had been murdered. It called the massacre a pre-planned program that bore all the hallmarks of ethnic cleansing. It said reliable contacts had informed them that the police had been ordered to stand down. The report laid the blame squarely on Modi's door. It was chilling to see the former, but obviously still cautious, British diplomat was one of the invest, uh, investigators on the fact-finding mission, choosing to remain anonymous for this back to the camera. Episode 2 of the uh, BBC documentary, less seen but even more frightening, is about the dangerous divisiveness and deep fault lines Modi has cultivated during his tenure as Prime Minister. For most Indians, it's the texture of our daily lives, sword-wielding mobs, saffron-clad godmen routinely calling for the genocide of Muslims and the mass rape of Muslim women, the impunity with which Hindus can lynch Muslims on the street and not only film themselves while doing it, but be garlanded and congratulated by its, by, for it by senior ministers in Modi's cabinet. Though the Modi question was broadcast exclusively for the British audience and limited to the UK, it was uploaded by viewers on YouTube and links were posted on Twitter. It lit up the internet. In India, students received warnings not to download and watch it. When they announced collective screening in some university campuses, the electricity was switched off. In others, police arrived in riot gear to stop them watching. The government instructed YouTube and Twitter to delete all links and uploads. Those sterling defenders of free speech hurried to comply. Some of my Muslim friends were baffled. Why does, it want to, why, why does he want to ban it? The Gujarat massacre has always helped him. And within an election year, then came the attack on the second tower. The 400-odd page Hindenburg report was published on the same day the second episode of the BBC film was broadcast. It elaborated on questions that had been raised in the past by Indian journalists and much went much further. It alleges that the Adani group has been engaged in a brazen stock exchange manipulation and accounting fraud scheme, which through, uh, which through the use of offshore shell entities artificially overvalued its key listed companies and inflated the network of its chairman. That's all I have time for, dear listeners. Um, you'll find this article posted on my Facebook page under my name, Mustafa Darsud, and my Twitter handle, at MMDarsud. Uh, Jazakallah, Jazakallah to Mohammed at the studio uh, for the engineer for putting the show together. And for those listeners of Radio Al-Ansar, we will continue after the 12 o'clock news. Jazakallah, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi